Well, good morning and welcome. A little chill in the air, and then you walk in and get air conditioning blasts, and we're, we're working through all that. So, uh, But the, the thing that the cool uh, change of season always reminds me of is God's faithfulness. You know, sometimes it's early September, sometimes it's later in October, but it always comes. Summer always turns to fall. And it will be thus ever until Christ comes again. And then whatever that new heavens and new earth looks like, I'm, I'm really banking on more fall than summer personally, but that's okay. Uh, whatever that looks like and feels like will be exactly as Christ determines. And so in his name I welcome you this morning. We have gathered together to worship his name to declare to our own sinful hearts and to those around us and to the world outside that Jesus Christ is the Lord and King of everything. And it is our joyful to delight to worship him and give him all the praise that he deserves. A couple things I want to point out in your order of worship or encourage you with. One is that we've just restarted our Sunday school year, so today was our second of the adult Sunday school classes. We are in our third year of looking at the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures, and hope that you will uh, come and join with us. What we do is meet at nine, and we have the first 15 minutes or so singing together, the adults and the kids, and then after we sing together, the kids go to their uh, class, and the adults have our class. And so we want to encourage you to do that. We're looking at the book of Daniel and uh, I'm, I'm just having a blast. I really enjoy digging into a book of the Bible and being able to, to open it up and for us together to look at what is this all about? What does this mean and how do, we, how do we live this? And one of the things that Sunday School provides is a forum where we can do more questions and, and discussion. Uh, so for that purpose, we're meeting in the Billings Room now instead of in here. And you'll find it's not available for live stream. And so we, that's intentional. We want to encourage discussion and, and give and take, and that is just not easy to capture on, on the live stream. But we are making the notes available. So you can go on, online, and where you'd normally go for live streaming, you can click there and get the notes. But let me just encourage you to, to come in person, to, to be a part of that Sunday school learning as we look first at, at the book of Daniel, but also continue through the year in looking at the prophets. Uh, several of us had a great time yesterday at the Historical Society here in town. They had their old town uh, fair uh, with all kinds of games and activities and things for the kids, and we took our, our face painting booth and, and our, our um, coloring books that, that walk through the gospel, and it was just neat seeing how God brings people that, that we've talked with months ago but had lost track with, and, and then they show up and, and we get into a conversation remind folk, oh, we've just started Sunday school. Now's a great time to, to come and be a part of that or talk with friends. I get to, to meet some of the kids in our congregation's friends uh, from school that came by and were there uh, in the booth. And so it's just, it's a great opportunity for us to continue to, to build on those friendships and, and connections that we might be able to proclaim Christ to, to everyone uh, around us. And so uh, that was just wonderful. We'll continue that Wednesdays, but we're running out of time. It's just the next several weeks uh, till mid-October that we'll be on the green 
uh, with the with the uh, farmers market uh, from three to six on Wednesday. So we'd encourage you to p participate in that. And the last thing that I wanted to mention by way of, of marking your calendars is uh, we have decided we're going to have the Thanksgiving supper the the uh, Sunday before Thanksgiving. So more details to come in terms of when and the logistics and all those kinds of things. But please go ahead and mark that on your calendar that, that you'd be able to participate with that um, Thanksgiving dinner and then we'll have a service afterwards uh, to, to sing and, and uh, enjoy and give thanks to, to the God who's made Thanksgiving possible. So let's prepare our hearts now to worship God. Along those lines, you might turn in your pew Bible to page number 982 and just read over and meditate upon for a few minutes uh, Philippians chapter 4 verse 1. That's going to be the the passage that we're looking at together in, in the sermon. So that's on page 982 in your pew Bibles. Let's prepare our hearts now to worship our God and King. Let's stand together for the call to worship. I'm going to read from Psalm 86. Hear now God's holy word. We will praise you, O Lord our God, with our whole hearts. We will glorify your name forever, for you have delivered us from the power of death. Bring joy to your servants, O Lord, for to you we lift up our souls. There is none like you. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you. They will bring glory to your name, for you alone are God. Teach us now your way, O Lord, and we will live in your truth. Give us undivided hearts that we may fear and praise your great name. And with our whole hearts, let us sing together, It is well with my soul. You'll find it hymn 691 in the Red Hymnals.
recognition that it is well with our soul because of what Christ has done is what frees us to do what we're going to do next. The good news of the gospel frees us to confess, to admit, you're right, God, I am sinful. There are all kinds of ways that I have dishonored you, that I have disobeyed you, that I have disrespected you. And that's not as it should be. And because of the gospel, we can then have the confidence to bring that all out into the light. There's no need to, shame, to hide things. There's no, there's no need for shame to control us. But rather to be honest with God and honest with one another. We are sinful. God's word says it. It's true. We admit it. And then not only to confess, but to turn from that sin. To ask the Holy Spirit to enliven us, to empower us, to embolden us, to turn away from our sin and instead to do what Christ has called us to. So that's what we're going to do now. First we'll hear the scriptural call to repentance, then we'll pray a prayer of confession together. And that may seem a little bit odd. It's like, well, I, I know my sins, but I don't know, necessarily know your sins. But the scripture talks about us all sinning together. And then there's a time of silent reflection for us to do that business with God silently alone, to, to confess our own sins to him. And then to hear the proclamation of Christ from his word, that though our, skins, uh, our sins be as scarlet, he has made us whiter than snow. And, and that's what we're going to do now. So please pray silently with me now as I read this scriptural call to repentance. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And now pray aloud with me. Holy Father, we long to have you change our hearts. We confess to you that we do not obey you as we should. We don't think your thoughts, speak your truth, or do the good that you command. We do not love our neighbors as you have loved us. We bend the truth to our own purposes. We harbor bitterness when we don't get our own way. We neglect and leave the oppressed with no defender. We break your holy law and delight in what you have forbidden. Merciful Lord, we humbly ask that you would forgive us and change our hearts. Conform us to the image of your Son. Holy Spirit, work in us, we pray, that we might be like you. Take a few moments now and pray silently.
If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? O Israel, people of God, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Praise be to God. This time we'll take the offering, and since it's the second Sunday of the month, we take our regular offering, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we take the deacon's offering, uh, second, that's, that's for diaconal ministry. This is the particular regular offering for the work of the church. Thank you. So in just a moment, we'll be singing, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go as a congregation. But here is a brief preview, uh, because we'll be doing it to a new tune by the Indelible Grace Group. Thank you for these gifts that you have given to us and allowed us to steward in your name. As we give them back to you, we pray that you would use them, multiply them, enable them to bring you glory through the proclamation of your word, through the discipleship of young Christians, through your work here on earth, Lord. We thank you and praise you, for it's in Christ's name that we ask all these things. Amen. Please join me as I pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness and grace to us that is true every day and particularly true and encouraging in times of grief. Lord, as this is an anniversary of a, a national tragedy, we are we were reminded simply by that number of 9/11 of horrors being done of grief that is still palpable particularly by families of those who died i was struck that this coming year the the babies of those who were killed who were not yet born will be turning 21. Lord, we, we pray for those children. We pray for their families. Pray for those struck by grief. And then as we have seen the passing of the Queen of England, Lord, we we're reminded that all other monarchs 
live and die. But you, Lord Christ, are the King who died for us but then rose again from the dead. You are the only everlasting, eternal, all-powerful King. You have conquered death for us. And while we are grateful for those who you have appointed to help protect us from enemies foreign and domestic, Lord, we recognize that every earthly kingdom is flawed, that every earthly kingdom will come to an end, but yours alone will remain forever. And so we give you praise and thanks, and we ask even as we as we seek to be good citizens in the kingdom in which you've placed us, as we seek to love our neighbors and interact in this world of warring nations, Lord, that you would help us never confuse your kingdom from the kingdoms of this earth, that you would help us to prioritize your kingdom above all else. Father, we pray that you would help us to be welcoming to people who come here from other nations. We pray that you would help us to continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who have been dispossessed, undergone the horrors of war, or that you would be with them and comfort them. And those aren't just words that we say, but Lord, use us to be agents of that comfort. Whether through our partnership with Samaritan's Purse or other ways for us to reach out and care. Lord, we pray that you would work in and through us. We're mindful, Lord, particularly of the partnerships that you have given us in ministry. We think now of the ransoms and as they've just returned to Italy where you've called them and where they're engaged in church planting ministry and discipleship and seeing the church that you have planted grow to have its own elders and deacons of folks there native to Italy. Lord, we pray that you would be raising up those men, that you would be strengthening that congregation, that you would give the ransoms and others that are helping in that work, wisdom and supernatural power by your Holy Spirit to teach clearly your word. Lord, that you would help those brothers and sisters that we've, we've not met, the, the people there in that church in Italy. And yet you know each one and have joined us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we pray for them that they would indeed stand firm. We praise you and give you thanks. And Lord, we pray also for our brothers and sisters in Christ here in New England, in this area of the world that has been a beacon to the world of your kingdom and yet has fallen into a season of real darkness, of indifference to you and your word. Lord, that you would renew and revive us. That you would work here at First Congregational Church of Woodstock and through other churches that are preaching your word throughout this region. Lord, that you would reclaim some of those churches that stopped preaching your word long ago and that 
once again the name of Jesus might ring from their pulpits. Lord, we, we entrust this to your care. You are the King of kings. Yours is the kingdom, the only kingdom that will never end. And so we bow in submission to you, Lord King. We joyfully ask that you, in your power and might, in your mercy and grace, might bring revival and renewal here. For we pray all of these things, Lord Christ, in your name and for your glory. Amen. This time we'll receive the deacon's offering. Lord God, we pray particularly for our neighbors struggling, struggling to pay the rent or to keep the lights on, struggling with the approaching winter and how they're going to be able to stay warm. Lord, we pray that you would help us as a congregation to always be mindful of the tremendous ways that you bless us and that we might use those blessings to bless our neighbors our co-workers and our friends. We thank you for raising up deacons who love you and are committed to obeying your word, who know that you, Lord Jesus, have said, the poor will always be with us, but not to use that to create indifference, but rather as an opportunity for us to serve those in ways that you have served us. Lord, we praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So that's a great example of what we get to do now. When we say amen, that actually just means, yes, that's true. That's right. And so with our affirmation of faith, that's our opportunity to say, yes, these things that God's people have affirmed through the centuries are true. And, and don't just take somebody else's word for it. I'm here to tell you it's true. And so we're using for that purpose the, this, these questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Please read those portions in bold. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What rule has God given to direct us in how to glorify and enjoy Him? The Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us as to how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Please stand together as we sing the Gloria Patri, hymn number 735. 
standing for the reading of God's word this from Exodus chapter 14 when Pharaoh drew near the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord they said to Moses is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Let's sing hymn number 708. You may be seated. I've been working for years for more amens. 
So follow the kid's lead, would you? Amen. Oh, God is so, so good to us. If you'll turn again in the Pew Bible there in front of you to page 982, we're going to focus our attention just on this one verse, um, verse 1 of chapter 4, that really is summarizing all of what has gone before in chapter 3. This is a, a summary of that teaching that we'll look at together this week, just focusing on verse 1, uh, and then next week we'll kind of take a step back and look at the at the bigger picture. But there's just so much richness in these few words that make up verse 1 of chapter 4. Hear now the holy and errant word of God. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my sorrow and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Oh, Father God, we praise you and thank you that you have not left us blind, you have not left us alone, you have not left us deaf to your great love. But, Lord Christ, you have come and brought with you your Holy Spirit that might give us eyes with which to see and ears with which to hear the unmistakable declaration of your love for us in your life and death and resurrection. We pray that that certainty of your love for us and our growing love for one another might more and more enable us to stand firm in you, Lord Christ. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Some of you are uh, familiar with the movie about the Battle of Dunkirk. Uh, there was a, a recent new movie done about that, and, and it was fascinating to, to watch, and there have been books written about it and all, all kinds of things. But you may not have heard about the very brief telegraph that a British naval officer sent back to Britain about the situation. His message was three words, but if not, but if not, what, what is that all about? Well, many of the commentators uh, of that incident remarked how part of that was even possible in a time in a world where the King James Version was the scripture that most Brits were familiar with, and that, in fact, most Brits were familiar with the King, King James Version or the authorized version of, of the scripture because it was taught in the schools and, and all of those lessons were, were gone over time and again no matter what your actual belief or faith was. And it's a quote from the book of Daniel. But if not, it is specifically what the friends of Daniel said to the king that was telling them to bow to his idol. And they've just told the king, <laughs> you don't have any power over us. We, we serve the king of kings. You want us to defy God and do what you say? Are you off your rocker? 
We're not going to do it. Because God will deliver us. And then they said, but if not. Now this was not them hedging their bets. This was not them saying, well, I believe God can, can rescue us. But just in case he's not as big or good a God as we think, no, 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 that's not what they're doing at all. They know their scripture well enough to know that that sometimes persecution comes, even martyrdom comes, not because God is not rescuing them, but simply because God is rescuing them through a different way, through the resurrection rather than through preserving their life here and now. And so they go on to tell Nebuchadnezzar, but if not, but if God doesn't deliver us right now in this moment, we're still not going to serve you. We're still not going to bow. Because we know who Yahweh is. And so this naval officer was radioing back home, communicating both the dire situation that the army was in at Dunkirk. There was no way of escape. They were facing mass slaughter. And very probably the the end of the war and defeat. So he says, but if not. It's dire. It's as dire as it gets. But God is still sovereign. That kind of three-word rallying cry, but if not, is similar to what we find in this text. This stand firm in the Lord. Now, granted, it's five words in English rather than three. But it, it has the same kind of effect. It is, it is communicating the dire need of God's people to stand firm and the ultimate certainty of our protection in the Lord. That He is the one that we are able to stand firm in. Whether we are slaughtered or not does not matter a whit. It is God who will defend and protect us and ultimately raise us from the dead. The resurrection has been the theme that he's been looking at all throughout chapter 3. This resurrection of the Lord, the power of his resurrection, his sovereignty over all things, including even death. So if you're turning your order of worship, there's a, a place there with notes for you to follow along as we look at this. And the three things I want us to see in this particular passage are first, that Christian affection is grounded in God's love for us. Second, that our joy in suffering together comes from Christ's victory. And third, that we are called to stand firm together in Christ. Look at that first thing. Christian affection is grounded in God's love for us. This is building on not only what we've seen in chapter 3, but also the whole book of Philippians. This, This reality of our being able to rejoice even in the midst of sorrow, even in the midst of affliction, even under persecution, that we cannot just grin and bear it, but actually rejoice actually delight in Yahweh, who is always the same, whether we are in suffering or in blessing. He is the same. He is the same God who delights in us so that we can delight in Him, 
that classic phraseology of Westminster Confession of Faith that says, you know, not only is our chief purpose to glorify God, but also to enjoy Him. It, it's not a call to stoicism. That's Greek philosophy that doesn't have any place in the Christian life. We are called, rather, to rejoice. And this rejoicing in Christ is linked here and throughout the book to his delight in us, his love for us. This affection, this right delighting in God and one another is what we've seen throughout the book. But let me read for you these verses in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, where Paul is just getting started in talking, and again, he's talking to the church that's there in Philippi, a church that by God's grace, he started beginning with praising God among his people, including Lydia down by the, the riverside, and then was thrown in jail and discovered there the, the Philippian jailer who didn't know that he needed saving until God showed up and let all the prisoners free. And he realized, the Romans are going to kill me. And only then did he cry out, what must I do to be saved? He's thinking, saved just like having a neck tomorrow. Connected to my head, preferably. But they know, oh no, no, you need far more saving than that. And this church that begins there in Philippi, that has an affection for Paul, not because of anything necessarily about Paul himself, but because he's the instrument. He's the one through which God has brought the gospel to them. And so he thanks them. This is what he said. Did I already read this? No. Thank you. Sorry. A little discombobbled this morning. Verse 3 of chapter 1. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness that you in your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What I want you to see there is the way in which Paul is, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, weaving together this love and affection for one another who are made brothers and sisters in Christ and our love and affection for God himself. And again, that's nothing new. We've seen Jesus answer the question, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and spirit, and to love your neighbor as yourself. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. You can't divide them. In fact, in 1 John, he tells us that if you claim to love God and don't love the brother or sister who's right here in front of you, you're a liar. You're not kidding anybody. These two must, of necessity, go together. And if you find in your life a lack of love for brothers and sisters in Christ, the problem is you're not loving Christ. And so the answer to that is the gospel. 
Lord Jesus, I'm a miserable failure. You already knew that. That's why you came and died for me. And so right now, in this relationship with this person, I need you to be at work in me, helping me to love them, helping me to forgive them, helping me to think the best of them, and not give in to all of my sinful tendencies in everything other than that. This Christian affection, this love that Paul has for Philippi is, is based on their great love in Christ. Now, oftentimes, commentators will say, of all, the, of all the churches that Paul planted, Philippi was his favorite. Because there's all this love language of, about the, the church in Philippi. And, quite frankly, they're the ones that are, that are financing him. Right? They're, they're sending him gifts to help support him while he's under house arrest in, in Rome. The problem with that is we find the same kind of love language to Corinth. The arguably the me most messed up church in the New Testament. Because Paul's love for each of these churches is not based on how well they're doing. But because Christ has gotten a hold of them and joined them together with Paul. I mean, Paul's the one who is on his way to persecute the church, who is arresting Christians and having them killed, and it's on his way to do exactly that in Damascus that Jesus appears before him and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What? I didn't, I didn't know I was. So Paul, if anybody, can relate to people treating Christians poorly. But he's been changed. And it's not just a once change that after which Paul never sinned. No, he, we see him having to repent. We see him and Barnabas having difficulty and, and then only later being reconciled. But all of this Christian affection is not just kumbaya, hey, let's all get together and, and be one happy family of our own strength. No, it's us knowing that God has loved us and seeing that in Christ going to the cross for us. And so this is what is driving his love and affection for the folks in Philippi. Now what we see next is Paul uses, the, in this one verse, he par it shows in parallel his love relationship with the Philippians and God's love relationship with the Philippians. In the, in the uh, large text one, you've got it laid out for you in, in that way, but if you, if you don't have that in front of you, let me just break it down this way. It says, therefore my brothers, that's the first line, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And what I am arguing is, is that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is actually saying this in putting in parallel my brothers, my joy and crown, with those whom God loves and longs for, so we should stand firm in the Lord. It's what is Paul's right next to what is Christ's. Now, let me, let me say, this is one of those things that in my study and preparing this, I always work at translating the text and then comparing it with the English versions. And most of the time it's like, oh yeah, that's, 
it, it just gives a richer depthness, depth to it rather than anything you know major different. But this is one of those rare times where I came to it and I'm like, this, he, the, the subject is not provided for the love and long for. It, it supplies that with a translation, and, and the way the translator has put it is, my brothers, you who I, Paul, love and long for. They're supplying the subject. The, in, the, in the original language, it simply has the two adjectives describing those brothers. And it is beloved and longed for. That's, that's all that's there. Beloved and longed for. And then it's followed by two other phrases, nouns, joy and crown. But with joy and crown, he specifically says, my joy and crown. Whereas beloved and longed for don't have any connection specific or explicitly spelled out. And if you're just reading through it, it sounds like, well, that's that's what Paul is saying. My brothers, I, I love you, I long for you, you're my joy and, and my crown. And it may simply be that I've spent too much time this week looking at Daniel and in the Sunday school class we were seeing chiasm in the way that, that God often uses parallelism. So I may be just a bit parallel crazy. That, that's okay. Here's a, an important pastoral point for you that I, I, as your pastor, I wrestle with the text. What does God's word actually say? I use the commentators to help me, but I'm not preaching what the commentators say. I'm preaching what God says. And to the extent that commentators are helpful, great, praise the Lord. And to which they aren't, they get thrown out. Right? And yet we also need to balance that with humility that it's not like in all of church history, the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed this truth to anyone other than Doug Warren at this moment, right? That's, that's not the case. So anything that I come to in my study that I can't confirm or verify. So for instance, in our Sunday school class, when I talked about the chiastic structure in, in Daniel, Sinclair Ferguson bailed me out because he's the one who said, yep, this is what's going on. Here's the chiastic structure. Here is one of those things that just is coming from your pastor. So, you know, but it agrees with everything else that Paul has been saying, that the Holy Spirit has been teaching throughout the book. So even if I've got the grammar off, which I don't think I do, but I'm not giving you a doctrine that is in conflict with what the Word of God says throughout the whole chapter. Does that make any sense? And, and just as a way of saying, for you, as you're reading the Bible, don't be scared off when you come to questions that you can't figure out. Or when you read something in the notes, right? More and more, we don't just have Bibles, we've got study Bibles with all kinds of notes in the bottom. You know, the notes underneath are not inspired. Even if they're by R.C. Sproul, they're not inspired. Okay, They can be very helpful, but to always take those with a grain of salt and always to be praying, Lord, reveal your word to us. Help us to see that. Okay, so here's the piece that I'm that I'm saying is it seems to me that these first two words, beloved and longed for, that the proper subject, who's doing the beloved, uh, the loving and the uh, longing for, is actually God Himself. One of the things that makes me think that is that the word that is used for beloved is 
a form of agape. And we probably have already heard that of the different Greek words for love, agape has to do with the love of God. And that's how it's used a lot of times in the scripture. This particular version or form of agape as an adjective is always beloved with of God that follows that. Or of the Lord. Beloved of God, beloved of the Lord. Here he just has beloved. But I think that that's not because he's talking about being beloved of Paul. He's saying, yes, beloved of God. It's just the the succinct verse 1 is very short. He's summarizing the whole of chapter 3, boom, boom. You are beloved of God, and you are longed for by God. Now, what what does that mean, to be beloved and longed for? It fits in together with the image that Jesus left his disciples going to the cross. And when he was telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and there they're going to kill me, but don't be afraid, I'm going to rise again on the third day. And then I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and I will return for you. And he uses the language and the imagery of betrothal, of a fiancé who is saying, I'm going to go and build our place, and then come back for you, we'll get married, and then we'll live there together. And so this combination of beloved of God and longed for is engagement language. And don't miss this, that according to what I'm saying is that this is God himself saying, you are my beloved, the one that I long for. Just as you were longing for me, I long for you. I can't wait to come back for you, for us to be able to be together. So beloved and long for is set up to talk about the way that God himself sees us. And then it's followed by joy and crown that this joy and crown describes us, the beloved, the the church there in Philippi, but also by extension for us. And so in addressing his brothers to summarize all of his teaching about joy, turn, flip back with me just to the the previous page as you've got your your finger there in Philippians chapter 4 on 982. Go back a page to 981. See how verse one of three states this. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he unpacks and talks about all the ways that we are to rejoice in the Lord, to not be troubled, but to know that the Lord is working in and through us, to not be led astray by the dogs who are teaching a false uh, gospel, that in all of these things we are to rejoice in the Lord. And so now he's summarizing that and saying the way that this rejoicing is possible, no matter what else is going on, is because we are beloved of God and longed for by Christ and together with one another. That Jesus isn't going to just come back for me. Right? Bummer for you guys, but when Jesus comes back, he's going to call my name and, and I'm going to go and meet him with the air. No, he's going to call all of us. And in fact, the scripture tells us that he's going to call those who have gone before us, the saints who have already departed this life and who are now asleep in Christ, will be raised from the dead first and then will join them. But the the point of his calling all of us together 
And because we are together in Christ, the beloved and longed for of God, Paul then adds his part to it to say, not only are you beloved and longed for by Christ, but you are my joy. You are my delight. And you are my crown. And this gets at the second point, that our joy in suffering together comes from Christ's victory, comes from Him uniting us together, taking us out of the, the flow of human history following Satan and disobeying God, and instead joining us to His family as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's look at these two words, joy and crown. The first, kara for joy, is, is this joy that we have because of Christ and our partnership in him together for the gospel. It is this delight, this rejoicing that we have that is not simply happy as a result of circumstance, but a joy that is welling up within us, that, that we've been rescued from our sin and death and joined together in Christ. This is the joy that we have. And notice how he's using this word, this descriptor of joy, to describe the Philippians. My brothers, you are my joy. Why? Well, he talks about that later in 1 Thessalonians, where he says it this way. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time... Now, remember how he was torn away. Right? As he would go and plant churches, the, the, those who were opposing him would come in and stir everybody else up to either stone him or imprison him or somehow else attack him, and then he'd have to go on to the, to the next place. So he's talking to them about being torn away from them, and then it goes on to say, For a short time, in person not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He's, he's wanting to see them. It, it's not enough just to send them a letter and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you, praying for you. How many of you experienced some of that with all of the, the disruption of COVID? I know some of you, there were, there were family members, beloved people that, that you didn't see for two or three years. But then how sweet was it when you got together, right? When you got to see them face to face. Zoom is great, but it's not the same as getting to wrap your arms around someone. And that's, that's the longing that Paul has for them. But sometimes people will look at this and say, well, Paul's you know, longing for them, he, he's missing them. Okay, that, that's fine. But then what is all this stuff of being the crown? Like, is, is this that Paul's just, you know, on, on his Bible, if you, if you unroll his scroll, you, you see their little, little tick marks, right? Of, of, okay, well, boy, a bunch of them came in Philippi, in Philippi right? Or, or him keeping track, like, their statistics that prop him up or make him more loved by God. No, that's not at all what's going on here. It's because of the connection that they have in Christ. I was lost, 
dead in my sins. And he's not only made me alive, but also joined me together with brothers and sisters. Some of you have had this experience of finding out as adults brothers or sisters that you have that you didn't know about. Have some of you had, had that? Where either you, you find out the, the long-lost family secret that, well, before mom and dad got together, oops, there was... Well, we don't talk about that, right? Nobody, nobody knew. And, and then you, you discover this brother or sister. Flash of my flesh. This is, this is my brother. This is my sister. What a, what a wonderful joy. That's what Paul's getting at here is the joy of having brothers and sisters in Christ. So he uses that language to describe them, my brothers who are my joy. But he also says, my crown. And there are two things here in, in terms of this word that I think are significant. First is that it's the term that's used for a victory wreath. This, this would have been the, the term that was used for Olympic competitions, that when they put the, the laurel wreath on, on your head, that was the, the term that they used for that crown of, of victory. It's, it's more technically or, or literally a, a plated wreath that, that is what the Greek term used here translated for us is crown. So, so why is the word used crown? Why, why is that what to convey what's going on in, in the language? And I believe it's because the, the second thing that we find is, is that it's the term that's used of Christ's crown of thorns. Now, the, the interesting thing is, is that that particular word choice of a plated wreath doesn't make any sense in terms of how it's used in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and John both use this term for a plated wreath or a, a Olympic crown to describe the crown of thorns that the Romans put on Jesus. And the context of what's going on in all three of those Gospels is, is that they're mocking Jesus. Jesus is under um, execution orders because he has been declared the king of the Jews. And it tells us that not only do they make a crown of thorns to hurt that they put on his head and then smash on it, and in another passage that they're hitting it, driving the thorns more into his head, out of mockery. They're saying, oh, you're the king of the Jews? And in one of the Gospels, it even tells us that he was. they not only put this, this crown of thorns on him, but they dressed him in purple. The whole point is that it's a mockery of his royalty. Some king you are. And, and so it's odd that it uses that term rather than a hundred other terms to mean more of a royal crown. And I believe that it's, it's that cutting irony that God uses in his words sometimes to, to say what you were using as mockery is actually the reality of how I'm going to, to win this whole thing and save my people. They mean to put on a fake royal crown. But what they're actually doing is putting on a victory crown because they don't know it, but they're going to actually kill Jesus, but in three days he's going to rise again. He's victorious over death itself. 
they can kill him only because he allows it, but they cannot keep him dead. And so it is this victory motif that is connected to the very term that is being used for crown, and I think specifically here in talking about Christians undergoing persecution. You see, it's, it's this beautiful image that, that you may put a crown of thorns on me. You may even drive me to the cross to die in the same way that my Savior did. But what you don't realize is, is that Jesus is going to raise me and us just like he was raised himself. What you mean for mockery, God is actually using to show the truth of the victory that Christ has won over death. So he uses these terms joy and crown to communicate deep truths of what the gospel teaches us. And then he uses that as the basis on which we are to rejoice. That brings us to our third point. We are called to stand firm together in Christ. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, you whom are beloved and long for my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And when you first read through that, I hope one of the questions that might come to your mind is, that is how? What is how? Like, did I miss it? He says, my brothers, beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, that's how you should stand firm. What's how? In the reality of who you are in Christ. You want to know how to stand firm? Do you want to know how those who have gone before us and been martyred and sung praises to God while they were burning at the stake could sing praises and delight in God even in those horrific situations? It's because they understood that they were brothers in Christ, greatly loved and longed for. It's like Stephen, who is martyred. What is it that he sees as he looks up? Do you remember? We uh, talked about it in Acts. Jesus, the one who Scripture tells us is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But when Stephen looks up and sees Jesus, he's not sitting down. What's he doing? He's standing. Come, Stephen. I love you, Stephen. I long to see you and you're just at the threshold and you're coming home, brother. It's that being beloved and longed for by our Savior and that it's not just Him. But there's a whole host with Jesus now who are delighting in Him, who look at the Christian coming home and saying, another brother? Another sister? Jesus, you didn't tell us about this one. As we come home to Christ, He delights in us, and our whole family delights in us. And that's the joy that Paul is experiencing as he writes to the Philippians, and the joy out of which he's then encouraging them. This now is how you should stand firm in the Lord. How is it knowing who and whose you are? Now again, so often the world will, will take a biblical truth and twist it just a little bit. And so there's a lot of talk in our day 
about our self-image, about believing in ourselves. That's true as long as what you're believing in is your reality of who you are in Christ and no other. But if it's just some generic, well, this is who I am, love it or leave it, there's, there's no confidence in that at all. But Christ, who looks at us and sees us as beloved, who longs for us, who's given us brothers and sisters of whom we are their joy and crown together, this gives us the confidence. This is the way to stand firm in the gospel. Delighting in God, who is the one who's made us beloved. Longing for Christ, waiting to come for us as he longs for us. Rejoicing in the joy that is ours in Christ. Exulting in Christ's victory, even as we humble ourselves and undergo suffering for his sake. Who are we in Christ? We're his beloved. We're his longed-for bride. Who are we in Christ? We are one in another's joy and crown. Now, this may sound absolutely crazy to you, or this may be music to your ears, but you've never recognized this in this way before. The, the thing that you need to do is not to, to try harder and, and win God's approval, but rather to bow before Christ as the King and declare, I am a sinner. I don't deserve this love and longing for that it talks about in this passage. But by faith in you, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust that what you say is true. And I'm putting all in to you. That you are the only one who can save me. And if you've never prayed that before, I pray that that would be what you pray today. Even right now. And if you have prayed that, then be reminded of this truth. That you're not in Christ's kingdom because of anything that you've done but because He has made you His beloved. He longs for you and has given you brothers and sisters of whom you are their joy and crown. This is the reality of who we are in Christ, and it is the way for us to stand firm in the Lord. To stand firm is not a rallying cry to dig deeper or to try harder or to gut it out. That will just end up exhausting you. But it is a rallying cry to rejoice in Christ's great delight in us as his beloved, that he longs for us. In this one brief sentence of chapter 4, verse 1, the Holy Spirit through Paul summarizes this whole section of Philippians by encouraging them to stand firm. Remember that rallying cry, but if not, keep that one in, in but also use this one. Stand firm in the Lord. Let us encourage one another. Let us encourage ourselves. And let us encourage the world around us to stand firm in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us with such a great love. With joining us together, not only with you, but with countless brothers and sisters throughout all time, throughout all nations and tribes, tongues and people. Oh Lord, we praise you. We ask that you would help us to know this so 
centrally in our core as to be able to rejoice in you together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing hymn number 705, I Know Whom I Have Believed. We don't know. But Christ does. 
And that's our security. That's our certainty. That everything, we can trust Him. Whether we're having a great day or the worst day of all, He is faithful. And that's enough. And now to Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Please be seated for just a moment. The last thing that I forgot to mention is today is the second Sunday. It is the Vespers service over at the homestead. You would make someone's day if you would come with us and sing and rejoice in the Lord together. 3.30 over at the homestead. Hope you'll join us. Thank you. Go in God's peace.